will make do. Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of James, chapter 1. Uh, we live in a day and age where I do 100% of my Bible study um, off of a computer, logo. So I always keep a preaching Bible on the pulpit, and somehow it did not get put back. So I'll try to make do with my non-large print <clears throat> preaching Bible this morning. So, uh, But I think we'll be okay. You know, we started eight weeks ago. And I asked you questions like, who are you? And how do you think about who you are? Um, how do you primarily process your identity, uh, your sense of self? For me, this journey uh, and this topic began years ago when we were uh, working through the book of 1 Corinthians as a church. And as I'm studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, some of you might remember Paul famously starts to challenge that church and he says, some of you say you're of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas or Peter, some of Jesus. And it struck me as I began studying through that text to realize that what they were trying to do is find their identity, who they are in somebody else. And so they aligned themselves with somebody, and this is who I am. And we live in a culture dominated by this, right? And uh, you can see it in, in mild ways. You can see it in extreme ways. Uh, you see it politically. I'm this, I'm that. Um, here's my flag, here's my banner, here's my statement. You see it in mild ways with sports teams. I'm for uh, Clemson or I'm from USC or, you know, it's, it's who am I? We see people struggle uh, if they've maybe been parents and they've raised their children and then their children leave their home and they are left wondering, like, who am I now? Uh, what do I do now with my life? Or when they finish school, what do I do now? Who am I really? When they retire, who am I? If they lose a spouse, they lose someone. And there's these constant questions of who am I? And when you look through 1 Corinthians, uh, there are 10 separate struggles, sin struggles that the church has. And they're all rooted in a warped idea of who they are, every one of them. So that you can begin to understand that in Corinth, their fighting, their infighting, their twisted way of thinking was sourced out of a warped identity. Well, that was something like four years ago. When I began thinking through this concept, and so uh, it ended up culminating in this understanding that the doctrine that addresses this identity question is called union with Christ. And so now we're eight weeks into this, and Darren made a plea on my behalf. I'm so thankful. Um, because when you do a doctoral dissertation, you have to do research, human research. Uh, to do that with you, I had to go through, all the kind of, I had to go through an ethics committee. Uh, and submit to them. And so if you can at all stay for the second time slot, we'll, we'll go through that. I, if I don't have that data, I don't graduate. Um, and so uh, if you love me, it's now a test of love. No, it's, it, we won't make it a test of love. Um, I don't even have chocolate to give you. Uh, I just will have heartfelt gratitude. But honestly, this series and this course of study has done my heart so good. And I hope that it's been a blessing to you. And this morning, I want us to conclude with understanding that, that coming to grips with your identity, your union with Christ, really is something that lasts your whole life. Just like you coming to a comprehension, a fuller understanding of who are you, who am I really, is a lifelong journey and process. And so we want to work through it this morning and, and think through it in maybe a deeper way. And I also want to maybe lay a foundation and set the stage for you moving forward in your own walk and in your own sanctification. Uh, let me begin with this mindset. There are things that happen in our lives 
They can be sudden events. Even if they're anticipated events, they can be sudden events that take us a lifetime to process. And typically, when we think of those kinds of things, we might most commonly think negatively. You're in a sudden car accident, or you have a sudden health diagnosis that is difficult. Um, you could lose a job. These kinds of things. But there are many positive things that can happen in our lives that are sudden events that also take a lifetime to process. Getting married, having a baby, uh, moving away from home, starting college and this whole new journey that's very different. Finishing school um, and completing something that, that you've worked so hard at. Getting a job for the first time or starting a new job, retiring, getting over a long illness, and so on. Sudden changes in our lives, uh, so psychologists, sociologists would call these identity crisis moments. Events that happen that take us a long time to process through and to really work through, to really get a full comprehension and understanding of all that happened. Changes that bring sudden stress into our lives to take time to work through. And they can be positive, they can be negative. Well, there's an incredibly positive one that takes place when we get saved. And it happens and that we are put into Christ and Christ is put in us. And it's so hard to even wrap our minds around the depth of that. Romans 6 does a wonderful job describing it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ are put into Christ? Um, I'm gonna work really hard to not preach this text uh, in a few weeks uh, in August, I think Sunday, second Sunday in August, I'm going to have the joy of baptizing my oldest son and, and him joining the church. So really excited about that and did not expect to get emotional. That was, that was unprepared. Um, but excited about that and, and thrilled about that. Um, it baptize, Greek word baptizo means put into. Our wonderful translators, most of them were, were paedo-baptists. They like to baptize infants. So they got to this word. They didn't want to translate it, immerse, or put into. So they transliterated it into our English language now, baptism or baptize. But it means put into. And so I'll just read it that way just so we understand. Um, you know, so if, if you're with us this morning, you're like, Steve just changes the word of the Bible all the time. No, I just want to give some explanation. Do you not know that all of us who have been put into Christ, Jesus, were put into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism or by him being put into him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is a sudden event. Conversion is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Now, even as I say that, you may not remember or be fully cognizant of the exact moment of your salvation. Peter describes some people's salvation as the dawning of the day star. It's a slow glow that, that tends to erupt over the horizon. And suddenly, at one point, the sun wasn't up, and now it's up. And I don't know how they determine what that time is they put on my iPhone. This is sunrise. But some, at some point, it's up, and some, then it's there. And so for some people, salvation is they heard the gospel a lot, and they're not even convinced that they know the exact day, but the reality is they walk in newness of life, and they have new desires and new affections, and they're saved. And other people, you can remember that moment. <laughs> you remember that moment of conversion and of God awakening your, your heart and your mind, and for you, it is as stark as night and day. 
it's not critical that you know that exact moment. What is critical is that you are aware and you know, are you in Christ or not? That is critical. What he's saying is this happens, and theologically, we know that there is a moment. Whether you know the exact moment or not, there is a moment. And you're saved. And this is a glorious change. It's a sudden change. And what I want us to help to understand this morning is in relation to our identity, it takes you a lifetime to unpack all that that means and all that that looks like and to really begin to understand it. And I tell you that because I don't want you to be discouraged by that. I want you to understand that that's the way God designed it. And so he's not frustrated or irritated with you or I as we are on that journey. At no point is God saying, are you there yet? He's not irritable with you. He's a kind father who designed this process because let me tell you something, there is a delight when you are increasing in knowing someone you love deeply. There's a joy to it. New things, new stories, new events, new affections. Um, I've now been married long enough, it'll be 18 years this summer, that she's heard all my stories. But sometimes I'll tell a story and she's like, I don't think I've heard that before. I know I've told it before. But now we've been married long enough, she started to forget it, which is good for me because they're funny. And so I like to get the laugh rather than the roll of the eyes, like I've heard that one a thousand times. But so sometimes in our journey with Christ, it's like that we learn new things, and sometimes we're learning things we forgot. God's not mad at you about that. Don't be frustrated. With, he ain't fr- Look, if Jesus isn't frustrated with us, should we be frustrated with us? I'm going to go with no on that one. But it's a lifelong journey. So this morning, I want us to understand, understanding your union with Christ forms a lifelong foundation for healthy spiritual living. One last reminder of this definition, union with Christ. What does that mean? It is the spiritual reality. It's the truth for that a believer is in Christ. Christ is in them. And the controlling reality, everything I do, everything I say as I relate to people around me in my life is to be Christ coming out of them. Now, you may hear that, though, and I want to start with conflict, right? Because conflict helps us to engage mentally and helps us to pay attention. What if I don't do that, Steve? (laughs) Like, what if I, okay, well, what if I don't? So what? You want to claim that it is? Um, I'm glad you're finishing your doctorate, but I'm an oppositional kind of person. And, And so why should I care what if I don't do it? Well, there's lots of ways I could describe it to you, but... um, Let's just think of it this way. Every once in a while, they run across what we call feral children. Feral children, F-E-R-A-L. Um, you, you might most commonly think of that term applied to cats. A feral cat means nobody's taking I think all cats are feral cats. Like None of them listen. Um, science has proven that this, this was just for Brenda. No, but science has proven cats actually know their name. They're ignoring you. They, they, they actually have proven that now. Dogs will come. Cats are like, whatever. I don't obey you. I'm your master. That's the way they think. So, but feral cats are supposed to be the ones that are non-domesticated out running around. Well, every once in a while, they run across feral children. The Jungle Book is based on that kind of a mindset, a child raised in the jungle. Now, there is no pure um, concept of them ever finding a child raised by animals that's at all functional. Because God has designed children to be comforted, to be spoken to, 
language development. If a child is not being held, comforted, and spoken to in the first two years of its life, it will forever, its brain actually shrinks and it cannot grow properly. They found a girl, one of the worst cases is in California. She had basically been locked away in a bedroom, no interaction, food almost just shoved into her. She had no mental disability. She just was completely unloved, uncared for. And so by the time she was discovered, she was early teenager. There was always a limit to her ability to communicate, her ability. To, she acted like an animal. She didn't understand her identity, did she? Because it had been warped because of abuse. And so she didn't have the concept that I am a, a little girl who should be loved, cared for, cherished, comforted, uh, taught, raised, encouraged, disciplined, um, uh, people speaking truth over me and into me. She had none of that understanding of humanity because she'd been treated like an animal. She didn't understand her identity. Is there a danger for a Christian to not understand their identity, for them to have a warped sense of identity about what it means to be in Christ? Absolutely. And so if you're coming and you'd say, yeah, but what's the big deal? I want to start by proving to you that the one you're going to hurt the most is you, but you will hurt others around you. This is incredibly damaging to your Christian walk if you and I don't grasp our identity in Christ, our union with Christ. If we have this warped sense of identity. In Corinth, it led to a number of conflicts, but maybe the book of the Bible that I can use to show it to us the best is in the book of James. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of James. And James is writing to uh, scattered Jewish believers, and he begins with his book uh, with this statement. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, if any of you lack wisdom, you're in a situation that you don't know what to do. That's what it boils down to. Stressful situation, I don't know what to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'm going to back up to verse 5, just point something out to you. Do you remember a few minutes ago when I talked about stressors of life and I used a phrase, it's a hyphenated word to describe them, sociologists and psychologists call stressful moments that cause us to lead us to question, who am I, what am I supposed to do? They call those identity crisis moments. They are moments to come to a better understanding of who you are. James is saying the trials of life can come in a, such a stressful way that we're left like, I don't know what to do now. No, I have no tools in my toolbox to fix this problem. And he says your response then should be in faith, ask God. Now, what is important about that? Because the whole book of James is about what genuine faith is. And genuine faith is faith in Christ. And so what he's doing here from verse 5 is he is describing what a believer looks like who is not fully engaged with, who does not comprehend, or who is not living out genuine faith, deep faith. True faith. And so he gives this term for it to describe it, dipsuke. He coined the term. We don't find it outside of Scripture. Dipsuke, double-mindedness. 
What James is doing is he's contrasting a very stable believer with a very unstable believer. This wave of the sea tossed to and fro. It's unpredictable. It's unknowable. Uh, the next time you go to the beach, you should count the waves. About every seventh wave is a little bit bigger. It has to do with tidal effect. But it's not guaranteed. Sometimes it's wave nine. Sometimes it's wave five. But even that wave, even the wave that crashed this time, will not crash the same way the next time. Because every time a wave crashes, it changes the, the seabed a little bit, changes the seashore a little bit. And so it's, gonna, it's unpredictable in its reactions and its responses. James is saying this, stressful moments reveal in the life of a believer whether they have a settled understanding of confidence in God or not. And he says the way you can see it is this double-mindedness. What, what he literally means, if we had the time to unpack the rest of the book of James, is it means that they have one eye on God and another eye on something else, uh, either on personal ambition. So God, I know God would want me to do this. This is a stressful moment, but I really want this. One eye on God or one eye on sin. I know God would want me to do this, but I, I, I really, I'm going to go after this. One eye on God, one eye on my desires, one eye on God, one eye on my sufferings. And on and on as James unpacks throughout his epistle. At the core, though, James is giving us a master class on genuine faith. And he says throughout his book that a genuine faith in Christ is a transformative faith. It changes us. It's a belief in God that changes us in a way that results in different behavior. To ask in faith then, here, where he says, ask God, is to ask God for wisdom sourced out of a belief of who God is and who you are in him. Well, how would I know that I'm really in him and he is in me? The rest of James tells you ways that you can know. Clear evidences that demonstrate does a person really know Jesus? Are they in Christ or not? Now that's critically important because we are, a lot of us are like the disciples. He says, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach will be given him, but let him ask in faith. If we're all like the disciples, our next question might be, well, how much faith? I feel like I have such little faith. And yet the answer time and time again from Christ is not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. Our faith can be revealed. Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Mark, when he tells the parable of the four soils, talks about trials of life can reveal, does a person really believe? The, the pleasures of this world can reveal, does a person really believe? Is there really faith? Faith can be revealed. Is a person repentant when they sin? Faith can be revealed. Faith can be strengthened, he tells us here in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It can, the trials can make my faith stronger, temperate, like steel. It can be purified, 1 Peter 1, 7, like gold, that the dross of my life can be, can be skimmed away, revealing pure faith. But faith is always in Christ, and genuine faith always results in changed behavior. James will say this in James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so, start unpacking it then. What James is saying is, seasons of stress can reveal. They'll reveal whether you have true faith or, or fake faith. This is what true faith looks like. It looks like changed belief. It looks like changed behavior. It looks like changed thoughts. Ask in faith. Stressful moments, identity crisis moments can reveal Am I really settled? Do I live out the reality that I'm in Christ or not? Am I double-minded or am I not? What James is describing then here in the opening verses of his epistle is double-minded person is a person who's not living out the reality of their faith. They're not embracing their identity in Christ. They're not living out the truth of their union with Christ, which is at the very core of our faith. When we have one guy on God and one eye on our own strength, we pray during trials, but without faith really believing that God can meet those needs. We don't really believe that God will give us all good things that he has promised, and so we work really, really hard for it. When we're double-minded, we pray to God about some way maybe someone has mistreated us. Well, God, would you deal with this, and would you bless those who have dealt with me wickedly? Um, but we, at the same time, concoct a plan of revenge. Or we rehearse in our minds over and over again what we really wish we could say to them. When we're double-minded... We pray and we say, yes, God, um, you, should, you should use my resources and my money, and I'll give and I'll, 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 I'll sacrifice calendar time, but only after I've expended it for myself. And primarily my resources exist to make me feel safe and to make me feel blessed rather than to bless others. Double-mindedness comes out of us in all kinds of ways. When we have one eye on God and one eye on ourselves, we categorize people as those that we need or those that we don't, those that we want to spend time with or those that we don't care about, instead of understanding that Christ has called us even to love our enemies. And even if our enemy were to come to us naked and hungry, we're to clothe them and feed them to not avenge ourselves against them, but trust his justice. Does it really matter if we don't understand our union with Christ as a Christian? Yes, because it is at the very core of your life. And if you don't, if I don't, and in every area where we don't, we are double-minded. We will be unstable. But it will also impact the community around you. Ten different problems in the church at Corinth were fruited out because of their failure to understand who they are in Christ. Conflicts in the church, abuse of spiritual gifts, the rejection of the roles that God had for them, rebellious against spiritual authorities. They were stingy instead of generous. And they sought to have approval through ministry rather than recognizing I'm improved in Christ, so I do ministry. There are tremendous consequences if you and I do not understand our union with Christ. It is at the very core of our belief system, 
And it's necessary to have a mature and stable spiritual life. But on top of that, Jesus wants you to know. <laughs> it's not just that, that it's dangerous and it will damage you and others around you, but Jesus wants you to know. All throughout this series, these eight weeks, I've told you how burdened Paul was about this concept. It is the atmosphere in which his truths exist. And so if you think about truths that Paul taught, some, things like Romans 6, that we are in Christ and we're in his death and his resurrection, and Romans 6 through 8 is this glorious three chapters on sanctification. So then we live in Christ and we then obey Christ and we're set free from the power of sin. That's like saying, here's the Milky Way we exist in, and that gleaming point of truth is like the sun. And then over here we have this other gleaming truth uh, that's all about the spiritual gifts God has given us. That's like the truth of Mars or Mercury hanging there in the atmosphere that we are in Christ. And over here is another truth about what it means to uh, do ministry through trials, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And that's like, that's like Jupiter in the midst of the Milky Way galaxy of our union with Christ. And so all through these weeks, I've kept pointing back to Paul, to Paul, to Paul. Paul is the author that uses it the most, James, next, and then Peter. But it actually all started with Christ. There's a wonderful passage at the end of Christ's ministry where he is the one who unveils this concept of union with him. And so as we finish our series this morning, I actually want us to finish with the first time this concept is unveiled. Why? Why not start there, Steve? Because frequently what you hear last is what you remember the most. And I actually want you to hear Jesus last in this one. Not that Peter and Paul are less important because we know it's the Spirit speaking through them, but I want you to see how Christ unpacks it. And so it's found in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus is preaching to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've left the upper room. He's going to be arrested in just a few hours. He will be crucified, and within 24 hours of preaching this sermon, he will be dead. And John 15 is a very famous passage of the, the vine and the branches. Um, most people think when they think vine and branches here, they, think, they tend to think grape vines. The reality is the word vine here really is tree. And Jesus is giving an object lesson because he's in a garden of olive trees. Garden of Gethsemane means olive press. This is pruning season. So as he's walking through this garden, you can imagine a more of, um, I don't know, how many of you have ever gone apple picking? Right? It's more like that, except they don't have the straight rows. <laughs> so it is trees, and these are olive trees. They're full grown. They start as bushes. They grow up into these trees. And in the pruning season, they go through and they trim off all the branches that don't have buds on them, are not flowering because it's going to just uh, take away, wick away uh, nutrients. And they make piles on the ground. And they bundle up all these piles. And so this is the time of the year. Uh, then Jesus then is walking through the garden. It's at night. Moon is light shining down. And he's got his disciples with him. And they're walking through. And he's literally describing the scene around them. And so it's a beautiful object lesson here, and this is what he says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's the guy who comes through, the gardener. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. As he's walking through, he's showing them the trees. It's obvious what he's talking about. What's fascinating is he's flipping on its head a illustration that exists throughout the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is frequently referred to as the vine. God's vine, God's vine, God's vine. Do you remember at the start of this week, this is Passover week, this is Thursday night, Jesus is preaching this. But the start of the week, do you remember the story of him walking into the city and there seeing a fig tree? And the fig tree didn't have any fruit on it. Do you remember this? And he curses it. And the next day they come and it's dead all the way. This was Jesus illustrating to his disciples how the nation of Israel had not come through on what God had for them. If you go all the way back, you think about the kings that Israel had. First king they choose is Saul. He's a train wreck, right? God gives them David. God bless him, right? The southern lingo, right? <laughs> David's a man after God's own heart, writes uh, almost the entirety of our Psalter, the Psalms, the hymnody. He defeats Goliath. He also turns a blind eye when his son rapes his half-sister does nothing when his other son tries to rebel and take the kingdom, commits adultery while he's standing on his rooftop where he kept all of his other concubines and murdered the one woman's husband. He's a hot mess. Solomon has more wives and concubines than almost you could count and is unwilling to get rid of any of them for the sake of serving God alone and follows their idols and he was the wisest man that ever lived. So the man after God's own heart, the wisest man that ever lived, the best kings Israel had, this is what we got. We needed a better king, King Jesus. You have the priests. You have some of these guys go wayward. You, you, you have uh, Haftai, Phineas, you, you have Eli. Like these guys are a train wreck. Jesus is the better priest. You have prophets, some of them who were sellouts, some of them were terrified. Jesus is the better prophet. Israel was supposed to be the vine, and the fruit of the vine of Israel was supposed to be this. Live in a land flowing with milk and honey, with grapes as big as a man's fist, that everyone can come and see what it means to be blessed by God. So Israel was supposed to be a vine that said, come and see the glory of God, and they are a fruitless disaster. And so Jesus kind of is a final moment walks into the city, curses the fig tree, demonstrating to Israel, saying they've done nothing because he's coming to be the better vine. I'm the one now. You know what this should teach us? I wish uh, Christianity had figured this out. It continues to be a way that Satan warps it. 
You can give people all the rules and laws and regulations you want apart from the power of Jesus, all you develop is fruitless branches that think they have it all together. And so really the cry of the Pharisees was unwittingly, come be fruitless with us. But we look really good. And Jesus says, no way. I am the vine. Five different books in the Old Testament. The theme is the same. Israel, you're supposed to be the vine. You've got no fruit. Now Jesus has shown up and he says, I'm going to be the vine. And we could boil it down this way. I am going to be the conduit for the power and the blessings of God. Because that's what the vine is. It's the conduit. It's the conduit of, of water, of nutrients, of life itself. Jesus says, I'm the conduit of all these things. Uh, got a little plumbing problem. Gary last week asked me how my week was. I said, oh, it was good. He said, oh, you must not have had any house projects. It was true. Well, my laundry sink is now sinking. It is now leaking, Gary. So yesterday, I go to Lowe's, go to, go to get the parts. Just so you know, every plumbing job in Steve's life it all automatically requires twice as many visits at Lowe's as any other job. I hate plumbing. Um, and I'm looking at this, and the only way for me to change this valve that i got to change in my laundry sink, it's not a big deal, it's not the end of the world, but i got to shut off water to my whole house. Summertime, a little hot outside, people like to take a shower. If the job goes well, it's an hour job. If the job goes not as great, i got about an hour and a half. If it goes poorly, <laughs> things will not be going well at five tip-top, you know what I'm saying? Because the water's got to, I got to have a conduit. I got to have water flowing. If, if, it's, if it's disconnected, it's no good. Faucets aren't good. Toilets don't flush. Icebreaker doesn't make ice. It's a bad scene. You got to have a conduit. The vine is the conduit, it's the flow of the nutrients and all that is life. Jesus says, I am the vine. Through me, you will receive all the power and life you need to do the things I've called you to do. It will be through me. We can fast forward, though, because then we get a moment here in verses 2 through 6 that's all about whether you're in the vine or not. We began this series seven weeks ago with the question, are you in Christ or not? Jesus describes this very truth. If you look at these passages, I'm going to ask you a couple questions here in a moment. And Uniquely in our summer series, I'm, 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 they're not all rhetorical questions. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So you got these branches, they would go through, and if it didn't have the buds on them, the flowers, they knew it was not going to bear olives. They don't want the vine wasting energy, nutrients, on fruitless branches, and they'd cut them off. They'd put them in these piles, they'd gather them up, and they're going to burn them. And any branch that had flowering buds on it, any little shooters that went off of it, they nicked all those away. Jesus is the true conduit in the power and blessings of God. If a person is not in Christ, what happens to them? Let me ask it this way. Easy question. There's no deep theology here. You don't need, nobody needs to know Greek or Hebrew in this moment. It's right here on the page. What happens to a branch... It's fruitless. It's cut off and burned. 
Now, we could go to the next level. Jesus loves illustrations. You don't have to have gone to seminary for this. You're all theologians. What do you think that represents? To be cut off and burned. Hell. It's exactly what it represents. What did James say about genuine faith? You say you have faith? Show me your works. Does that sound eerily familiar? He could have used this language. You say you're in the vine? Show me your fruit. Even the demons say, I believe. This is why when we talk to people about salvation, I say we, I know Darren and I at least, I, I hope that not just Darren and I, our question is not, have you prayed? Have you filled out a card? But our questions are much more like, hey, can you talk to me about how you see Jesus changing you? What are some ways you see God at work in your life? How is he growing you? If you were to zoom out, and this is hard for any of us to perceive, that's why it's good to be part of a community, what are some ways you're more like Jesus now than you were three months ago, six months ago, a year ago? Jesus is making it very clear that the power for fruitfulness is not sourced in the branches themselves. It's sourced in the vine. True connection to the vine results in fruit. And so what he's telling you is if they're not fruitful, if there's, if there's not obvious evidence, then they don't belong. Jesus is empowering fruit bearing and judging those that bear no fruit. It's a revealing that branches are not really in him. The contrast is fruitful branches. So then here's another ask, and we can brainstorm here for a minute. What then is fruit? Like, the, what are the fruits? What, what are some ways, what are some fruits that we could even see in our life? Jesus in us, coming out of us. Vine power coming out these branches. This sickly, weird branch just bearing out Jesus' power. Jesus' glory. What are, some, what are some real fruit? Objective, real fruit. What is it? What are some of those things? Brenda. Yeah. Yes, because Romans tells us, don't avenge yourself. I got it. Remember, you can forgive and still seek justice. In fact, biblical forgiveness will seek justice. That that's not revenge, right? <laughs> right. Um, Mr. Pancake, eighth grade, me slashing his tires and putting M80s in his mailbox was revenge, right? <laughs> that wasn't justice. That wasn't justice. And then Jesus also says in the famous Lord's Prayer, we forgive so we make sure we're going to be forgiven because we don't get to claim Jesus forgave me, but I don't forgive other people. Yes, one fruit. Yes, forgiveness. Absolutely. Good. What are some others? Serving. Sir, absolutely. I'm actually going to serve out of a heart of joy and love. So the hard thing is service is one of those that's touchy because you can serve. Uh, remember Jesus talks about those that are not actually of him, false prophets. They say, but look what I've done. I, I've, if we put it in modern-day lingo, I taught Sunday school, and I worked in a nursery, and I, I took up offering, and I served as a deacon. I was a pastor in a church, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. 
But you also, James makes it very clear, you're not going to have a believer who doesn't serve. <laughs> that just doesn't exist. That just doesn't exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some other fruits? Love. Yeah. Because we can't love on our own. We can't love the way God called it, can we? We just can't. It's character of Christ. Think of fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, self-control. It is Jesus in us coming out of us. It is evidences of the power in the person of the Holy Spirit. It is obedience to Christ is a fruit. I'm going to obey what God tells me to do. Um, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that is the key issue. Don't tell me the things you've done. Show me how you're obeying what I've called you to do. Now, the glorious result of this is that it actually produces fruit in your and my life that we desperately long for. Consistently, research proves the key to a happy life is not more money or stuff. I think we all know this, and I think we all struggle with this. The keys to life, a happy life, are not more money or things or more of what you want here. The keys to a happy life are deep, meaningful relationships. This is secular research. This isn't just, like, the Bible's true. That's the authority. But even the world recognizes if you want happy people, they need deep, meaningful relationships. Let me say it to you this way. Deeper joy grows in gardens of deep love. The lie of the devil is that we can isolate ourselves, this is Proverbs, so that I can then do whatever I want to do so I'll be happy. The truth is, isolated from the vine, the only true source leaves you dead and withered on the ground. The real fruits that Christ even points us here to is that you can have real joy and real love through him. And so we end up with this glorious cycle. We are in Christ Christ the vine gives us access to the power of God. When God looks at his own son, he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because of this, we experience the deep love of God. Why do you think when you and I as believers die and we get to heaven, he will say, enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. Because of some inherent goodness in me? No, but because of Christ in me. Because of Christ in me, because my identity is in Christ, I begin to live in a different awareness of how my Heavenly Father sees me and relates to me. Not with irritation, not with frustration, but with patient, kind love. With grace and with kindness, with truth, with leading. And so I begin to experience the deep love of God, and that brings me the joy of Christ. Suddenly, my joy is not based upon anyone else's approval. Do any of you, you don't have to raise your hand, I'll just say it this way, because I know you do. I know that you struggle at times believing if so-and-so would just appraise me or approve of me, or if they would be kind to me, I would be happier. If I could just have this relationship, I'd be happier. 
And in that moment, we are revealing that we are black holes of acceptance. In other words, it would just consume any light given to us. And it's never enough. But in Christ, in Christ, I am satisfied. I am loved. I am accepted. And so suddenly when you hear Paul say things like this to the church in Corinth that were judging him, I care very little of what you think. He's not being arrogant because he falls up and says, because the one I really care about what they think of me is God. But when you really, you can tell when somebody cares about that though. Because there's lots of people that claim that. I don't care what anybody else thinks. As long as God loves me. And that's how they say it. And I can just tell you, they don't understand. Because when you rest in that, you start acting a lot more like Jesus, who speaks truth, but in love. And who's gracious and kind, and who's patient, and who's forbearing, who's forgiving. And this produces an internal joy. And out of that source of love and joy, we love others the way God loves us. And we're like, oh, man. And I just want you to know, as we interact with other people, that starts showing us ways that we need to grow to be more like Jesus, doesn't it? It just does. And so we then are driven back to needing to live in the awareness of our identity in Christ, and our union with Christ. And then we experience the deep love of God. And then we have the joy of Christ. Then we love others. And you end up with this glorious cycle that's intended to exist throughout all of our lives. And so how, I don't know why my remote decides, I'm going to die right there in the middle of this man's sermon just to make life hard. So how do we chase this truth in our last few minutes here this morning into this series? I want to give you a couple ways. First of all, this is now lifelong pursuit. You need to pursue self-awareness. In doing a lot of reading and research about the concept of identity, um, it's interesting because you are who you are whether you realize it or not, right? Um, for Father's Day, my kids gave me these sweet kicks. They're vans. I am a poser. I don't ride skateboards because if I do, I break things. And I don't mean ramps. <laughs> I mean wrists, hips, and legs. And look, I've already had enough old jokes in my life. I don't need to break a hip at 48, right? So not happening. But they, I like them, and they're comfortable, and they're cool, and I'm down with it. And my kids said, that's fine. They're not too old mannish. What's my identity? I'm a 48-year-old dad of three teens. That's my identity, right? I, I could try all kinds of things. That's still who I am. When I was a teenager, I wore a jean jacket and ripped up jeans and all this because I was a grit. That's who I am. Like, the, like who am I? At, at one point in my life, um, I had a boss who loves bluegrass. So I was like, ah, I love bluegrass. I don't love bluegrass. I kind of like some of the songs. I, do, I really legitimately do, but I don't love bluegrass, right? Um, and, and, and so what, who are you? In, in all my research about identity, I just want you to do this. You are who you are, whether you realize it or not. If you're a believer, you are in Christ, whether you fully understand it or not. But to be spiritually healthy, you need to grow in your awareness of what that means. Just like to be emotionally, mentally healthy, you need to grow an awareness of who you are. Do you know the number one demographic of people who drown in the United States? Number one demographic. Middle-aged men. 
more specifically, middle-aged white men. Because they go to the ocean with their family, and they've been swimming their whole life. Rip current, I know what to do. Boop. 20 minutes later, 55-year-old man drowns off of Myrtle Beach. 62-year-old man drowns off of, off of the beach in Florida. 45-year-old man drowns. Number one demographic running away, middle-aged white men. You know why? They've forgotten who they really are. They're not 20 anymore. They're not 25. They're not 35. They old. <laughs> Stay on the beach. Slather it with some sunscreen. Wade up to your knees. Relive your glory days as you look out. And don't drown. <laughs> it's an identity problem. It really is, actually. It's this concept that we lose track of who we really are. You are who you are, whether you realize it or not. What I want you to understand this is, is this, though. If you, as a believer, are not pursuing this, you are causing problems. Remember the consequences? I'm unstable, tossed to and fro like a wave. I cause problems. I'm going to cause problems in my life and in my church, Corinthians. But primarily, I want to hold you at the blessing. So I get the stick over here. Here's the carrot. You want to live a joyless life? You want to live a powerless life? Because Jesus said, abide in the vine, and you will know my power, my love, and my joy. You got stick over here. Look, I, this morning I really don't care if it's stick or carrot for you. But my word, brothers and sisters, chase a lifelong journey of understanding. How do we do it? First step, have some self-awareness. Understand who you are. I like how theologian and counselor Robert Chong says it. When we lack self-awareness, we misunderstand ourselves, and that leads to misunderstanding God as well. Our pride blinds us with inaccurate ideas about who we are in relationship with God. Every one of us in this room has blind spots, and every one of us in this room lacks self-awareness. How in the world can I increase then in my self-awareness, Steve, so I understand who I am? Hmm, how could it be? Well, sociologists and psychologists say this, you'll only have greater self-awareness as you interact with other people. I bet God never said anything like that. Do not forsake the assemblings of yourselves together so that you might provoke one another to what? Love and good works. Exhort one another daily lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. I have given you spiritual gifts from on high. I ascended. I gave you spiritual gifts from on high, Ephesians chapter 4, so that you might learn to do the work of the ministry, so that you might increase, mature the body as you speak the truth to each other in love. Like the old game of battleship, A4, B9. As I interact with other people in my life, and this is beyond the church, beyond the church, but in the church, it will start to show me areas of Jesus in me coming out of me and areas also that need to be pruned. I'll come to a greater awareness of who I am in Christ. Increase self-awareness. A mature identity for the Christian begins with asking and answering, am I in Christ or not? Am I even saved or not? But it's also this lifelong journey to understand and live out that reality. Good self-awareness leads to changing behavior. It's not just I know who I am, but I'm going to start changing what I do and how I act and how I behave. Greater spiritual health. How does that happen? It happens in our mind, our will, and our emotions. 
Prior to salvation, a person is at odds with how God, with God and how they think, feel, and act. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When you and I are saved, when we are justified, converted, put into Christ, this happens positionally, but also begins to change us. It changes our mind, Ephesians 2, 17 through 18. It changes our will, Ephesians 2, 20 through 32. And it changes how we feel, Colossians 3, 1. Set your affections on things above. Conversion results in new thoughts, new actions, and new desires. As we come to grips with how our thoughts are not God's thoughts, we intentionally will start believing what he says instead of what we naturally think. We think insecure things. Let me confront some of your thinking. You think insecurely things like you're not valuable. You're not worthy. You don't belong here. You're not smart enough, bright enough, handsome enough, pretty enough, gifted enough, skilled enough. These other people, this body of believers, doesn't need me. But when I begin to think God's thoughts about who I am in Christ, the truth is this. You are chosen by God. You are loved by him. You are empowered by him through the abiding presence of Christ. He intends to show other people himself through you. As we begin to think God's thoughts after him, it does begin to change how we act. When we choose to outdo one another in honor, why would we do that? Because we want to honor God in and through this person, coming out of them. When we choose to serve out of our weakness, because we know it's his strength and not our strength. When we choose to keep pressing into others instead of running away from others, because we're safe in God. So the risk of rejection here. The reality is I might find my greatest security in Jesus anyway. And so it begins to change what you do, and it will affect how you feel because we will experience the comfort of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the joy that comes with obeying God. Our emotions become connected to these thoughts and actions so that we will increasingly say, that was Christ in me coming out of me. That wasn't me. That was Jesus at work. This is only made possible for the believer who will pursue this in a lifelong way. And so Jesus gives us this lifelong truth and a lasting illustration for us to understand from the power of the vine. What does genuine faith look like? What does fruit look like? It sees all of life as a change process. It does things like taking responsibility for your communication. Assumes the care for the needs and hurts of others. It chases relational connection with healing with others. James unpacks it. Paul unpacks it. I'm just throwing lots of text at you this morning knowing you can't process all of those. This is the fire hydrant moment of this sermon intentionally because I want you to know that a whole New Testament unpacks what it is to be in Christ. How do these things happen? As he does a pruning work in your life and in mine. You know, probably 
17 years ago or so, I was spending a lot of time in John chapter 15. And, and I made two lists on a legal pad. I still have it somewhere. And on one side, I listed all the things I wish were true about my life. I wish that, um, and some of them I was just rawly honest with, right? So some were good desires, some were bad desires. I wish that I was respected by my family. I wish that I um, was a better preacher. I wish that I was a better teacher. I wish that I understood more. I wish that I was that I was more like Jesus in being merciful. I wish that I was kinder to people. I wish that I was more forgiving. I wish that I um, could move past old hurts. I wish all these things, all these things. And then on the left side of the column, I began to write down the things in my life that God would have to prune, cut out of my life to make these things true. That was a really good homework assignment. It served me really well. But I want you to know something. When I got to the end of it, I still had this sense about God in me. I had this sense that God as the vine dresser walked through and he grabbed the branch of Steve and was like, still makes it all about him sometimes. Still can't move past this comment. Still gets lazy in study. But I want you to understand this about union with Christ. It's now, oh, you know what? Jesus is doing a work to bear some fruit out in him in mercy. And this is going to cost him. This is going to hurt when I cut this. But, man, if I don't cut this, he's not going to experience the deeper joy and love of my son through him. Let me snip that one off for you. Oh, here's another one. I mean, if I don't do this good work, it's going to cost him, and he's not going to be able to be the dad that he really wants to be. He wants to be that dad because I want him to be that dad. And Jesus, my son, is working through it. Let me snip that one off real quick. It's a totally different mindset, isn't it? The reality is this. The pruning process is the removal of our flesh, our sinfulness, our worldly thoughts and our deeds, our double-mindedness so that we can be better conduits of the person of Christ. It's his power, not ours. It's his thoughts, not ours. It's his deeds, not ours. And yet we get the benefits of joy and love while God is glorified. He wants to do that your whole life. Am I calling you at the end of eight weeks? No, if you're in Christ or not. And if you're in Christ, embrace your true identity. And understand you can spend the rest of your life learning it. And it will be a continual cycle of joy in him. That's his desire for you. That your joy may be full as he's glorified through you.